Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, a naturopath, speaker, educator, and coach. And this is Food Freedom Body Love, a podcast I put together to help you make peace with food, body image, and weight so you can kick your all-consuming, exhausting weight control food obsession habits and start living your best, healthiest life. Hey, this is Jill. And before I get into the next session, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. We have more people than ever tuning into the podcast and these sessions, hearing these important stories and how we work through them. And so just a huge thank you to to every single one of you that's here. And I want to ask three things of you. First and second, can you please go to iTunes and rate and review the show? It really does make such a huge difference. And three, could you please pick a favorite episode and share it? Share it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, or just email it to a friend. Uh, We want to get this information into as many hands as possible, and it really will, again, make all the difference. If you do share on social media, be sure to tag me on Instagram at foodfreedombodylove and on Facebook at Jillian Murphy ND. In this session, I'm speaking with a woman who has a long history of disordered and distorted eating. At 12 years old, she was hospitalized for three months with anorexia. After working with a therapist for many years, she moved through that, but distorted eating popped up again in her 20s, and at present, she's stuck in a new iteration of distorted eating. What's really incredible about her journey is that she's managed to work her way several times out of incredibly challenging things, challenging places with food. And what I noticed through this, you'll see that there's a, a thread through it where she's had to rely on a lot of external control and external guidance and external measures to see if she's okay to see if she's doing all right with food. She announces at one point in the session that at this point she identifies as being orthorexic, having an unhealthy obsession with the quality of the food that she eats and a rigidity around the the types of foods that she eats. And when that pops up and I'm working with someone, I typically have to do a lot of challenging of unreasonable food rules and beliefs. Like it takes a long time to work through the food rules that have built up along the way. But what stands out to me in working with her is that I just get the sense that she's not that hung up. Like she's worked her brain around the fact that that foods aren't inherently bad. She's still stuck in the habit of believing they're bad and she hasn't developed the skill to be more flexible with them. But I just get this sense that her her brain is coming around to the idea. And so um, we just start to approach this orthorexia or this rigidity in a slightly different way from a different angle. Let's go. My story with food probably began when I was around 12 years old. Um, I developed anorexia um, and was hospitalized for about three months. Um, My eating disorder came out of 
uh, it wasn't a body image related eating disorder at that time. Um, I wanted to be a vegetarian and my father did not want me to. Um, and so it became kind of a power and control thing. And so for the last 30 years, my relationship with food has, when it's, when it's been at its worst, um, been about that. Um, you know, food has been a way that I gain power over situations in my life that feel out of control. Um, so I was hospitalized for about three months. Um, when I was in high school, I had a fairly normal relationship with food. When I went away to college, I was able to really explore vegetarianism and veganism. Um, and then when I was in my early 20s, so it was when I just started grad school, I was in a really unhealthy relationship. And then I was also in a car accident. And that um, combination of factors ended up leading me to kind of spiral into old practices. I um, started restricting food and then binge eating. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of shame around it. Um, yeah. I reached out to the therapist I had worked with when I was 12. And he um, basically told me that um, I had overcome something a lot harder and that I would be fine. And so I had to work through things on my own. I didn't feel like I had anybody who I could trust. Um, and, you know, one of the problems I think for me had been since I was a childhood anorexic, um, the warning signs that people looked for in me didn't involve, um, you know, eating a lot. <laughs> and right. so, so like my, my parents, if I get thin, my parents worry a lot about me. Um, at that point I was at a normal weight throughout. Um, and so no one really noticed. Um, and it was, it was awful. Um, yeah. That idea that like, if they can't see the problem there, there, there isn't a problem. Exactly. And that people are kind of looking for the wrong problem. Um, so then that I, again, I was kind of in a normal place. Um, and then I got married and was pregnant with my daughter. And that is when I had probably the healthiest mindset about food. Um, I felt like I was eating to take care of her and to nurture her. Um, and so I trusted myself a lot. That's where the idea of intuitive eating um, really became kind of part of the framework that I was using. Um, and then after that, so my daughter's 13 now, and probably around the time she was three, I got really um, serious about running. Um, I was locally competitive, um, placed really well in a lot of different events. Um, and then I fractured my pelvis. <laughs> and, and when I yeah. fractured my pelvis, I, um, the, this is when the issues that, um, that I want to talk about for now kind of come into play. So I fractured my pelvis and I started really overtraining when I was recovering because the exercise I was doing was so, um, so slow, right? I was used to training very hard and very intentionally. Um, right as a runner. Um, and so as I was recovering, I couldn't put any weight on my bone. Um, and so I would spend a lot of time in the pool. I would do like really long, slow workouts. Um, and just, I was really obsessed with being able to, um, stay, you know, fit without running. Um, and I also at the same time, um, 
went to a local nutritionist who, um, I don't know if you talk to people about like Alcat testing, um, but I went through Alcat testing and it was the worst decision I ever could have made. Was this, is um, this like a sensitivity test? I it think? is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it's one of the sensitivity tests where they give you a list of like a hundred foods that you can't eat. Um, right. And that's really the last thing that somebody with <laughs> a childhood eating disorder needs. Um, and so I was eliminating things and just doing all kinds of messed up stuff. And I, long story short, kind of developed orthorexia where I um, was very, very obsessed with eating the perfect foods. Um, I would follow a, 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 you know, not even like, it wasn't even a restricted diet. Like I eat a lot. Um, but I always eat the exact same thing. Um, and just, I, yeah, really... not to, sorry to interrupt you just for any, you know, just for anyone listening, just sure. differentiating that orthorexia is different from anorexia, although they mm -hmm. can bleed together, especially, you know, eventually, but mm -hmm. it's really about quality of food, not quantity. So somebody could be eating the correct amount of quote unquote fuel, but the diet becomes more and more rigid because of, you know, perceptions mm -hmm. about quality or cleanliness of the food. Right. And very, very isolating with that in mind. I mean that like, you know, before all this happened, I would go, you know, if I went to a race or something afterwards, I could go to a coffee shop and get a vegan muffin or something. Yeah. Um, and I got into this point where I was like, I can't eat anything that I don't make myself. Um, and so, you know, over the next literally like six or seven years, that just dominated my life. Um, and kind of in the midst of all that, my best friend died really unexpectedly. Um, and, you know, so it was all, all just kind of a mess for a while. Right. Um, and I kept like being in this frustrated spot of knowing that I had a problem, but not knowing what to do about it. Um, mm -hmm. And again, feeling like, you know, the people that I reached out to, the nutritionist here who did the allergy testing, you know, it was somebody who wanted to sell a product at the end of the day. And so like they wanted you to do a cleanse that involved particular shakes and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so like, I've kind of been able to look at myself and say, I need to get out of this loop. Um, and then, you know, I, I couldn't by myself. Um, and probably, so this kind of goes back to my daughter as like an anchor for recovery for me. Um, last fall, my daughter was going to be studying abroad. Um, and I was planning on spending um, a week with her. And I thought, you know, I can't have this mindset about food and travel. And so I really, really worked hard to say like, I introduced a couple of like eating out a couple of days a week and doing different things with food to kind of start to normalize my relationship with it. Um, and you know, that, that helped a lot. It helped me really feel like I can do this. Um, right. and you know, so that's kind of where I got. Um, and then, you know, I went, I had a really good experience with my daughter. I came back, you know, and I've stayed, I, I mean, I still basically eat a, like a so-called clean vegan diet um, with a lot of restrictions on it and everything, but I have been able to give myself permission to every once in a while, like 
venture off that. Um, yeah. And so that was kind of where I was. And then, um, oh my gosh, and probably three or four months ago, I started to notice my daughter restricting um, and she's 13 and I really freaked out. You know, I was like, this is exactly when my issues started. Um, I basically went online and bought every book about intuitive eating that I could find. Um, I tried to kind of gently like talk to her about it. Um, and she was kind of like denying it for a while. And then she was like, mom, you're right. Um, I've been doing this. Here's why. Um, and so I gave her the intuitive eating for teens workbook and she started kind of doing it on her own. Um, and you know, now I'm at a point where I guess kind of wrapping it up and saying like what I want now is I want to be able to, um, be a healthy role model for her, not feel hypocritical. Um, and also feel like in doing that for her, you know, I'm really valuing myself a little bit more. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of where I am. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, in terms of like getting into like real specifics in terms of your relationship with food Uh at the moment, um, how much ease is there overall? Like what is, I don't know how we can quantify this, but it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, where do you think you're at now? And ultimately where do you want to be in terms of like ease and flexibility when it comes to eating? I think, you know, the thing that I can't, that really, that really is still a struggle for me, um, is, that first of all, I do actually have some dietary restrictions um, that are legitimate. You know, like I'm an ethical vegan. And so that's, that's one thing, but I'm also gluten intolerant. um, And that's something that over the last few years, I've kind of thought, am I making this up? Is this all in my head? And then if, if you've ever worked with people who have gluten intolerance, it's not all in your head, it's all in your bowels. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, like I would try to kind of be like, I'm just going to go ahead and eat some bread and then it would just really backfire. Um, And so, you know, like I've come to terms with that um, and, you know, been able to say to myself, you do have restrictions. They're physical restrictions. What are the mental restrictions that you're putting on yourself? Um, I love that. And what comes up for you? Right, right. And that's what, I mean, I think for me, um, I have internalized a lot of ideas about sugar. Um, you know, that like sugar's bad. And, <laughs> and so like there are foods that I, that I do restrict or like, kind of say to myself like oh I'm avoiding this for whatever reason um but really it's just because I've got like a fear of sugar that I can't let go of um so I want to be able to just kind of ease up on that to say like if I eat if I eat a Lara bar like that's not bad um yeah no way right and so that's the kind of thing just being able to kind of loosen up the judgmental attitude around food for myself. Um, Does sugar feel like the biggest, like the most pressing thing? I think the two things that are the biggest thing, like the kind of ideas around sugar. Um, and then I, I tend to be, you know, like I, I'm not a competitive runner anymore. Um, but I exercise every day. Um, and I, 
feel like in my head, I have this idea of, I need to have like a perfect pre and post exercise meal. Um, and so I put a lot of stress on myself for that. Like before you exercise, you need to eat this. Um, and I want to be able to let go of that because I'm just doing freaking yoga classes. You know, I'm oh, not yeah. training for the Olympics. <laughs> right. So, um, so I guess those are my two issues to kind of get rid of some of the food fear. Um, and to, to acknowledge that, yeah, on one hand, eating to fuel activity is important, but I don't need to eat like a bodybuilder or like a professional runner or an elite athlete of some kind. I can just eat like a mom who does yoga. Uh-huh. Right. Right. And even recognizing, <laughs> I always think it's fun to throw in stories of people who actually are professional athletes and just uh-huh. eat, like, I don't know if you remember, there was a story in People years ago, Michael Phelps. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> right. And people were shocked, not only because he ate, you know, 10,000 calories a day, because, but it was made up of pizza and fried mm-hmm. sandwiches and pasta and salt. So, you know, it was all exactly, it was all just whatever. And he was arguably, you know, potentially the fittest person on the planet. Right. I'm not right. saying that, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily, um, you know, an ideal diet. It's not something I, I would necessarily prescribe, right. but the idea is that we tend to become in these situations where really the motivation, and we're going to circle back to this is perfectionism and control, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but we use things like to, to make it logical in our brain. Yep. Of course it's healthier to be eating all of these micronutrients. Of course it's healthier to be restricting X, Y, Z, because uh-huh. we have all of this proof that it's so bad. And yet um, the reality is that there are many people all over the planet that eat really widely varied diets who live a long time and exactly. have great physical performance and who aren't sacrificing their mental and emotional well-being every day. Exactly. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that's kind of the bottom line for me. I feel like you know, the food issues have led me to really um, not be as present in the rest of my life um, with people, with being able to enjoy events and all that kind of stuff. I love this because for me, it's all about what is the consequence of this? Because the reality uh is that being a vegan is not the problem, right? Right, Or having to avoid gluten is not the problem. There are people who are vegans and who can't eat gluten, Uh who have a peaceful, ease easeful, pleasurable, relaxed relationship with food. It's, mm-hmm. it's this extra layer of perfectionism and control and preoccupation that's, that's leading to not being able to be present. Uh-huh. No, exactly. Right. And I'm wondering, what is the fear? Have you examined that? Like, say you couldn't exercise for a couple of weeks and, or you just had to eat I mean, we're in the middle of this coronavirus situation. I'm not sure if it's uh-huh. changed anything for you, but for some people it has, and they have less control over what they're eating and it, and it brings up fears. Like, have you, have you played around or, or sunk into that at all? Like, what is the fear? What's going to happen if you eat sugar? What's going to happen if you can't exercise every single day? I don't know, honestly. I mean, that's a really good question. That's, that's one of the things about food that I haven't really thought about. Um, I feel like, like this is super dorky, but have you seen the movie Bird Box? No, Sandra, is that the Sandra Bullock? Yeah, there's a point in it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. (laughs) There's a point in it though at the very beginning where Sandra Bullock basically says something like, um, oh my gosh, 
like my problem is I obsessed about the wrong things and I feel like that's basically the story of my life it's like uh, you know we could be in the middle of a global pandemic and I'd be like oh my gosh there are seven grams of sugar in this um and so it's like I I don't know I mean I don't know what the fear is of or what I'm afraid of letting go of um I think it's just, I think it's control. I mean, I think that, Mm -hmm. that it's a perfect example of when we can't control squat, when we can't control anything in our lives, which we, for the, for, you know, the most part, we really aren't in control of a whole lot. Uh It, food becomes, um, there are, there are other ways that we can take control, but food definitely does become a way to control something that feels more tangible and more manageable. Right. But what I often like to say to the people that I'm working with is that the trick of it all is that we think we're in control. We Mm -hmm. think we're doing things to control. But again, what's really happening is we're really just being controlled. Right. Right. No, I think that makes sense. The thing we're trying to control inevitably ends up controlling us mm-hmm. because you're not in control. Cause if you were, then you could drop this, right? Exactly. You could be like, Oh, I'm going to, to Italy for the week. And I don't, I can do whatever uh-huh. I want. <laughs> no, that's right? exactly, exactly. What's so frustrating, like paralyzing about it because, you know, I know that I know that this is something I grabbed hold of, you know, to get control and that it's absolutely controlled my life. Mm-hmm. So one thing, I have one question, just in terms of going back through your history, mm-hmm. there's two, two gaps for me um, where, you know, you were hospitalized at 12 and then mm-hmm. you returned to school and things kind of normalized. And uh-huh. then you had the car accident and the bad relationship and things went really downhill in terms of restricting again, but also binging, uh-huh. um, which is a which is just a reaction to restriction when we can't control restriction anymore. Um, And then you got pregnant and things seemed to get better for a while. And I'm just, it's interesting to me because number one, childhood eating disorders are incredibly challenging to recover from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet there seems to be, and I'm sure that there's more to the story, which is why I'm asking, Mm -hmm. but you seem to have been able to really turn things around in a couple of tough moments mm-hmm. on your own with a little bit of help. I'm just wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about that. Like what was the process for you mm-hmm. of being in a really tough place with food and then being able to get to a place, if not completely healed, a place that felt a little bit more normal? So with the childhood eating disorder recovery, first of all, I did keep seeing the same therapist for a number of years. I mean, basically all the way through high school. Um, I worked with him, you know, it was kind of a graduated thing where right after I left the hospital, I was going in once a week and then it went down to like once a month. Um, and then, you know, and then it was like quarterly or something. Um, and so that was, um, that was part of it. Like I had him there for my entire high school. Um, I also did skip a grade. Um, so I was hospitalized at the end of the year of seventh grade and started, um, started ninth grade. And so I kind of got like a fresh start after that, um, where I didn't know people, people didn't know that I had had an eating disorder. Um, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't that kind of sense of like, this is the girl who, you know, was in the hospital all year. Um, and so I think that combination made it where I could just, have like, and when I talk about normal, 
I'm not saying that I was just like eating intuitively or doing anything, you know, like that. It was more just like, I, I was able to kind of socially just not worry about it as much. Um, I didn't do any activities that put pressure on weight. Like I didn't run track. I didn't do, um, you know, like cheerleading or dance or anything like that. So, you know, I think I was very fortunate to not, um, to not have the kind of physical pressures. Um, you know, like I, I think I said this at the beginning of our conversation, for me, disordered eating has never been about being thin. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, one of my big issues is I'm very disconnected from my body. Mm -hmm. um, I literally don't look in the mirror and think about myself as having a body. Um, and I think that's very different than a lot of people. I think it's different than my daughter. Um, it's different than my sister. My sister was a professional dancer. And so when she had food issues, it tended to be about wanting to lose weight so that it would, um, you know, so that she would match the ideal and be able to perform well um, and appear the way she wanted to on stage. Um, and I just never had that. Um, so when I felt like fairly safe in my world and able, you know, like my dad let me be a vegetarian in high school. Um, so it was kind of like I, I had the things that I wanted kind of as under control as a, you know, high school kid can. Um, so I think that's why those years were relatively easy for me. And what did you, is there anything that you remember learning through that therapy? Because it feels like therapy was really integral to mm -hmm, you pulling out mm -hmm. of that um, in terms of yourself or your relationship with food or control. Um, is there just anything that you remember really getting from that? Well, the one piece that I did really get from it, my therapist um, had me write like a contract um, about like what I was gonna do and all that kind of stuff. And so it was almost like I got this early initiation into um, like goal setting and planning. Um, mm -hmm. And that really helped me. Um, when I feel kind of unanchored, being able to say like, these are the things that I am gonna do to take care of myself, um, it did help a lot. Um, and so that's something that, that, I, that I got out of that. It was sort of um, and, like non-negotiables, right? Like I'm going to eat this uh -huh. much. I'm going to, right. Which is very common in eating disorder therapy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I responded very well to that. And then kind of like piggybacking onto that, I'm a writer. And so um, that contract structure kind of also bled into just doing a lot of like free writing and journaling. And um, I actually write poetry um, and I kind of kicked it into gear when I was in recovery. Um, and I would use my writing as, you know, kind of an extension of that. Um, so I guess that's really what, um, what I left therapy with. Um, I also left it with a lot of frustration, honestly, um, because I did feel like other than the primary therapist, so I worked with, um, a, a psychiatrist and then also like there were um there was a nurse that if I wasn't checking in with him I would check in with and the nurse was very um old-fashioned about thinking like 
you may be saying that this is about power, but it's really about body image. Um, mm -hmm. And so I left with a lot of frustration that people reduce young women with eating disorders to people who just care about weight, um, because I think it's so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And um, is there this, and this is something you can choose to share or not share. Mm -hmm. um, was there mood stuff going on as well? Because often when an eating disorder, you know, I'm not sure if often is exactly the right word, but if it's not about or didn't start as about body image or weight, mm -hmm. um, it can be about controlling sort of mood, anxiety, uh -huh. low mood. Um, was that part of the picture? When you were young, I honestly not. don't remember from when I was younger. As an adult, after my car accident, I started struggling with really severe anxiety. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about that for me um, is, yeah, you're right. I mean, like the food and the control, like that fiction of control definitely came into play with that. Um, but I also found out after I had, um, you know, I would kind of had just what I felt like was natural kind of low-grade anxiety. Um, right. And then I had a full-blown panic attack um, that I went to the hospital for um, because I thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> and after that, um, I found out that a lot of the women in my family have struggled with panic attacks and severe anxiety um, and that nobody talked about it. So, mm -hmm. you know, like we all have this kind of thing that we're that we're thinking is like a source of shame that we really could have connected on. Um, so, you know, that was, that was definitely something that I learned over the years. Right. And it's a layer that we're, that we're going to have to keep in mind as we work through this, because mm -hmm. if food is a coping mechanism, you know, it's effective for, in a uh -huh. lot of ways, controlling food and understanding that, you know, basically I'll talk with, when I'm working with people, I, I try to always remind them that, you know, what I am really working on is kind of the, the diet culture layer. Uh -huh. It's almost like this is like a three pronged situation uh -huh. and diet culture definitely makes everything worse, right? It, it oh, yeah. feeds, it feeds the, it, it's one of the reasons we go to food in the first place to control because we live in a culture that encourages that and, and, uh -huh. and does talk about bodies in a certain way, whether we're super conscious of it or not. And then right. there's these two other prongs, right? And one of them is sort of, you know, I sometimes sort of call it personality, um, uh -huh. which is that there's very specific personality types and traits that get pulled into eating issues. Uh -huh. Empath empaths, people who are very uh -huh. empathetic, yep. perfectionists, intelligent, you know, there are, you know, and then there's the mood prong. And right. And I've got all three of those. <laughs> right. And so the reason I bring that up is because, you know, we can pull apart all of the diet culture pieces to this and it will help. It will absolutely help. But there are just going to be other things that mm -hmm. for you as an individual, you're going to need to continue to work on uh -huh. in, in kinds of like regular therapy or other kinds of therapy because they're going to want to pull you back into coping. And if it's not right. food, even if we can switch the food, it could turn into something else. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And it's also just going to, um, like I said, it's just going to be this ongoing layer where, it, you know, it's not just about media or images or mm -hmm. whatever. There's always going to be this like, you know, maybe there's going, I don't want to say always, but there could potentially be this low grade anxiety that you need help coping with. Right. Right. Um, 
or this this perfectionism uh, that we're going to have to continue to explore, even when mm-hmm. you start to pull about pull apart beliefs about food. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm also interested, though. There was that second. You know, you just were sort of talking about it, where after the car accident and the bad relationship and the anxiety was high, and then you were clearly able to work your way out of that a little bit and then, you know, get married and, and transition into pregnancy where you were able to ease up on yourself. I'm just wondering what, what helped you through that period? Cause it sounds like that therapist wasn't so helpful. Right. <laughs> That's true. Um, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think part, actually I do. Um, I feel like becoming a competitive runner really did help me because I started thinking, you know, kind of uh, continuing that same um, thread of what we were just talking about that um, I, I saw food as doing something um, practical for me and functional. Like if I ate, you know, I could eat what I needed. I, I wanted to eat in a way that would make me a better runner. Um, and so I was very um, intentional, um, but also not restrictive with it. Um, and so I think that that did help me. I just kind of, it de- it took away a lot of the emotion from food and made food into kind of a source of, um, you know, a source of literal fuel, which is, I guess, ultimately, like what I wanted to come back down to. Um, you know, I don't feel like I need to be super happy about every meal that I eat or anything like that. Um, but I feel like if I could just take away some of the feelings from it and say like, food is what I need so that I can do the other stuff in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I had at that point. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sure also like running particularly even more so in my, in my clinical experience, what I found more than other, even other forms of exercise, there's something that offers up a little bit of a sense of control as well, right? Like it eases anxiety, it, um, Uh there's something very sort of like ritualistic and Uh it becomes quite addictive in a, in a sort of coping way. Oh, sure. And it's also, I mean, I guess. Which can be positive. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily negative. We just need to be aware of the fact that it, if it becomes something that also is isolating and discourages you from doing things with other people because running is always the priority or Uh um, if it becomes such an obsession that you're willing to power through injury or. Exactly. Right. And that's what, like when I was doing well with running, you know, it was something that, um, you know, that gave me a kind of an easy structure. It gave me like, I would follow training plans. So it kind of limited, um, it, it told me exactly what I needed to do. I didn't feel like I was kind of uh, having to think of like, oh, I'm doing this much or blah, blah, blah. I just followed the training plan structure and then I was done for the day with my exercise. And, you know, and then I could kind of track my progress with pretty measurable goals. Um, and then after my injury, I didn't feel like I could do that because, you know, like I couldn't get back to the point where I had been before. Yeah. And then um, in terms of sort of like where we go next and how, so, cause it sounds like if I'm getting this right, you feel free to correct me if I get it wrong mm-hmm. a little bit here, but it sounds like 
you've managed to work your way to a certain point and then you kind of feel stuck. Right. Right. And there's this desire to be a healthy role model for your daughter and to be a little bit more in touch with your own self and valuing of self. And I'm just wondering, what does that look like? Like what does being a healthy role model for your daughter mean or look like that's different from where you are now in the stuck place? I think it would, for me, mean being able to feel flexible around food instead of, um, regimented. So like if we at the last minute um, wanted to do something and I didn't know where I would be able to get an easy, you know, a lunch that fit my rules, I would be okay with it. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't kind of freak out. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the kind of thing that I think that I really want in the next, you know, (laughs) Yeah, the next step in this in this process of recovery uh-huh, for you. Exactly. And so I'll just say that's so interesting that you say that. I love okay, because flexible is one of my favorite words when it comes to food and movement, right? Like as I'm uh-huh. all for, you know, people caring about eating well and moving their body, but pleasure and flexibility are the two words that I think have to go along with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fuel right? Or, right. or, you know, things that are physically good for us. Um, and, and because the reason for that is because I think that it, it alludes to this ability to be in touch with your internal self and desires uh-huh. and wants and appetite that goes beyond just, I'm a, I'm a machine. Right. No, I think that makes sense. And so what's interesting in in you saying that you want to be flexible, which again, I just, I can't love it more. I feel like I want to burst. It's so good. Uh-huh. It's such a good goal. Um, is that what I noticed through your history is that you, you've done such an incredible job of working yourself out of some deep holes mm-hmm. and where you seem to stay stuck though in each of the, or I don't know if stuck's the right word, but but where you land is in a place where there's still a lot of external rules and control. So like the contract, it gives right. you, and, and again, I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just, uh-huh. it's an observation that what got you out of the first round of all of this or the first session of this was sort of this, among other things, external factors, skipping the grade, people not knowing a contract, right? right? Oh my gosh. I never even have thought about that. I thought a lot about all of these things and I've never thought about that. Right. Second time through, there's the running, there's Mm -hmm. the pregnancy, there's just different things that um, allow you something. It's giving you the ability to move into a slightly more relaxed place because there's another external sense of control, right? Okay. So I can be a more relaxed with my food because the pregnancy is happening, or I can be a little bit more relaxed because the running's happening and I have an external guide for running. And so what we see here is that, or what I'm hearing here is that you are ready at this moment. What you're desiring and wanting is to go from a place of being in externally controlled and regulated, uh-huh. to a place where you are more internally controlled and regulated where yeah. because flexibility requires internal because flexibility requires being able to say yes or no and doing it in a moment in a split right, second and right. where's and and where's the plan for that there's no plan for flexibility there's no eating plan there's no um uh-huh. 
training plan. There's no, it's, it's moment by moment decision-making that comes from, here's the big word, trust. Oh my gosh. This is, you don't understand how much this is resonating for me because, you know, kind of going back to all this, I've got such an, a, a kind of all or nothing mindset around it, that instead of being able to just be like, okay, whatever, maybe I'll eat this. I'll say to myself, I am not going to be afraid of sugar. So I'm going to buy, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then I'm like, like I'll bake something and want it to be like this challenge that I'm going to eat it. And then I'm like, no, I don't think I can. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, that absolutely makes sense what you're saying. And trust, you know, people will say, when I work with them, well, I don't trust myself. If I start eating that thing, I don't trust myself. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, what does trust mean? And what they really, the way that they're, they tend to be defining it in their mind, and this is something like we're going to start moving into action items for you because I feel like this is the next step for you is to play around with trust and confidence uh -huh. with yourself and your own ability to regulate and and trust. And this is going to be, you know, a long and layered process for you, right, but this feels right. like a really incredible first step, which is changing the definition of trust from like, I can, I can, I will get it perfectly right. Like when people say, I don't trust myself, what they're yeah. usually saying is I don't trust myself to get it perfectly right. I don't uh -huh. trust myself to eat the exact amount of brownie that is correct for my body, which no, is unknowable anyway. Right? <laughs> and so I don't believe I can get it perfectly correct. And so I'm not going to do it. I'm too scared. It's all going to fall apart. But what real trust is from my perspective and my work is not getting it perfectly right. It's being able to handle the consequences of not getting it perfectly right. Huh. No, that makes sense. Like I am capable of managing right. whatever happens here. I can do this. And, and, and then the other thing that gets layered on top of this is confidence. Well, I don't have the confidence to do that. I don't have the confidence to make the mistakes. I don't have the, and I don't have the confidence to eat the thing and figure out if I can manage. And I just, you know, confidence comes from doing something right? and effing it all up yeah, and figuring out how to manage it and solve it and manage the, the tough thoughts and emotions mm -hmm. that come up and to distance ourselves from them and manage it and move forward, right? And so right. what this is, is a process of becoming, of getting a little bit out of your head, although we can use your brain because you're a writer and we, we can use this in our work, uh -huh. but um, getting out of your brain and into this, into your body, which again, you've identified as, as something that's a bit of a challenge for you, right? right. right? So this needs to be experiential. It needs to be something that you feel and not something that you logic your way in and out of. But again, that, that's sort of a little bit more ninja level. And, and right. the first thing that we need to do is just ease the brain and appease the brain. Uh -huh. um, so I feel like what I would do to get you started here, two things. The first is use your writing, your writer's tendencies to really start to hash out what you're, anytime we want to make a change, there's a process of what we're moving toward, but there's also the very real, you know, what we have to give up to change. Uh -huh. 
And so for you, it's like, what I would love you to do because you enjoy journaling is actually journal on that. Like, what am I giving up here? If I change my relationship with food, if I start to trust myself, what am I giving up Uh and get like so deeply honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. And especially because I know that you've said that, you know, body and weight is not really part of the picture for you. I want you to be prepared for that to maybe pop up, even if it's a really deep layer or even if it's a newer layer, be prepared because, you know, you know, giving up control, giving up, you know, sometimes it's superiority, right? Sometimes eating a certain way can make us feel better than other people. Um, but weight often does factor in when we start to think about what we're giving up. Also, you're giving up a coping mechanism that's been effective. And so it might be, what's interesting about writing about it is we might start to be able to get clear on how you can maintain small aspects of the coping mechanism Mm -hmm. as you work toward being more internally regulated. Like how do we if, if you're, you've got this tight fist of control on food, how do we like release a baby finger yeah. and then like a ring finger slowly without having to drop the whole thing, right? Yeah, but really sense. thinking about what you have to give up here. But then the other side of it is I would also love you journaling on what you're going to get. Like painting the most vivid picture of what it will look like to be completely internally regulated, to be able to be flexible, to pursue food for pleasure, Mm -hmm. to eat things that just feel amazing, right? Yeah. Actually, emotionally, to just go out to dinner and not look at the menu ahead of time and not weigh and, and balance every decision and just eat. And what's going to be interesting for you or what's going to be great in the fact that you're a writer is that it sounds like you don't have a lot of memories of that. Ah, I was just going to say that, (laughs) that that really, you know, I've thought about that. Like when I started reading about intuitive eating, that was literally the thing that I struggled with. I kind of said to myself, I don't know what that feels like. I mean, because since I was 13 years old, food has not been about pleasure or feeling or anything it's been about something different like I don't know what it feels like to um to eat with pleasure as kind of the objective or like something that happens you know well that's I mean that's gonna be the second part of this this is that's gonna be the more experiential part of this for you Uh but um, it's the homework I'm gonna give you but the first part the first part Yeah. Like for a lot of people, I'll, you know, if this developed, if their eating issues developed in their twenties or their late teens or later, you know, I can say, let's go back to the last time that you remember just eating a meal and it was just totally amazing and fun. Right. Right. And you don't have that. And so what you're going to do is you're going to write it like you're writing a scene in a movie. Okay. And I wanted to love that. I want it to be like the most vivid, beautiful, like you go on holiday for a week or you're going to the Mm -hmm. most beautiful evening supper somewhere and it's just all easy and you don't have to think about it. You just get to experience it and what that would look like and feel like, because that is what you're going to get. Oh my gosh. It's so juicy, right? Yeah, it is. And then the second part of the homework is going to be harder because the first part is writing. But the second part of the homework is then, like I said, once we start to ease the brain, once we start to like, you know, get clear on what you're giving up and why you're going to give it up and why it's important to give it up and what you're moving towards and what you're going to get 
out of it and we start to ease the brain a little, what I want you to actually do, the second piece of this homework is to actually spend some time. You can set the time frame on it, but you know, whether it's a week or one day a week where you just pursue what sounds like the most pleasurable thing to eat. And sometimes when I say that, what people immediately conjure up is like just all junk food. Mm -hmm. And it could be, especially in the beginning, that could be something that comes up for you. But realistically, it's usually a balance of foods, right? Uh But really approaching, I kind of, I'm not sure why, but it's standing out to me, this idea of like one day a week for a Uh couple of months. I'm not sure why. It just feels like that might be really manageable for you. Right, right. Where it's just like, I'm just going to wake up in the morning and I'm not going to plan and I'm not going to check and balance. And you're going to have to do a lot of managing of thoughts. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's going to be a lot of like what Ellen Satter calls cognitive dissonance, which is like radio static the whole time about why this is wrong and bad and blah, 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 blah. But it's one day. It's one day. You know, if there's one mantra through all of this, it's like my body can compensate for one day. Okay. No matter what happens, doesn't matter if you ate Oreos the whole day, your body Mm -hmm. could compensate for that. No problem. So I just want you to get the experience of just what do I feel like eating and then just Uh eating it. It's this, this is an intuitive eating. It's a, it's sort of like I'm, I'm riffing on the making peace with food process, right? Okay. Yeah. And then you just check in. How do I feel after? How do I feel? Okay. And then you're just like, you know, without judgment, without shame, without a lot of storytelling, because again, to start off with, you're just going to do it one day a week, you know? Right. Um, it's not, it's not forever. And so without a lot of judgment or storytelling, it's like you're in that food anthropologist mode mm-hmm. where you're just, oh, I like that. you're uh-huh. just observing. How did that feel? Okay, great. I've got information. I ate a little too much. Oh, I'm still hungry. And then you just, what's the next step? What would mm-hmm. be the most pleasurable next step? And then you just move through the day like that. And, and that's in terms of eating and movement. And, and it's not going to fix everything, but it, will, it starts to give you, ideally, hopefully, some moments of brightness of like actually eating something for pleasure and it being fine and okay. Uh-huh. And it also will highlight deeper layers if there's a struggle with it. Right, right. No, that makes sense. If you're struggling to just eat a sandwich, you know, mm-hmm. why we can dig right. into why that is right. And, and what the food rules are that you created in your brain. And then we're able to start challenging those and pick, pulling that apart. Like, but I just love the, the simplicity of, I'm going to spend this entire day eating what, what feels or what will be most pleasurable. And you can also, you can approach movement on that day the same way if you want. Okay. And then just have, you know, just as a little addendum to that, just have that mantra on hand, something simple that feels real and true to you to help you manage the thoughts. Like it's just one day. Uh I'm just learning to trust my body. I'm turning down the volume on my brain because my brain is biased. Right. (laughs) And doesn't have all the answers. It keeps taking me down the same path. So I'm just going to turn the volume down on your brain today, even though I know you're trying to keep me safe and I'm just going to be in touch with my body. What does my body want and feel like? And at the beginning, if it just wants chocolate, then just do chocolate. Your Mm -hmm. body can compensate for that. It, It can make up for that and it will be fine. 
but then be the food anthropologist and see how you feel after eating chocolate. See how it feels at the end of the day. No shame, no blame, to see how it feels. And this is an imperfect um, baby step into just getting in touch with your internal desires. So beyond just hunger and full, but desires mm-hmm. and appetite and um, where you're still stuck with food. Now that all makes a lot of sense. Remembering that ultimately what the goal would be if we were to continue working together is to get you to a place where you are trusting enough of yourself that you can be flexible and you can pursue pleasure and you can go with the flow and not need continual external checks and balances to tell you that you're okay. Right, right. And with the deepest, the deepest layer of knowing that there may be some mild coping mechanisms that continue Mm -hmm. um, because of these other prongs of the issue, right? Which is personality and mood and, you know, factoring in those things and allowing for those things, but just again, you know, turning the volume down on them so that they're not, they're not the loudest thing happening. They're just, you know, they're just something in the background. Uh How does that sound? Oh my gosh. It sounds wonderful and it sounds terrifying. So yeah. 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 But you know, it's like flying a plane is terrifying. Right. Right. But a pilot doesn't just hop in and take off. Right. It's like there's, there's learning that needs to happen. And what I really want you to remember is that you're going to be relearning something. You're Uh relearning how to eat from a different perspective. And so there will be mistakes and that's okay right? And that you're going to slowly baby step yourself or baby step your way to being completely internally regulated, right? You're not just going to hop in and do it. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a process. And just like the pilot, you know, it would be terrifying to just jump off the, you know, to just take off the cliff. But it's not scary when a pilot finally does fly because they've learned along yeah. the way and they've had the training wheels or the person with them or whatever I, mean, <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't know how to fly a plane it's a terrible analogy <laughs> it's all I right because i can't give you good, good i trust examples. you on it don't worry but, yeah. but the point is that you know i don't trust myself to fly an airplane i don't have the confidence to fly an airplane because i've never done it and right. i don't have any of the skills to do it mm-hmm. and so for you what we're going to do is just start to build the skills And just remembering that, that you're learning something new, you're learning skills. It's not, oh, I'm broken and I don't have it. Yeah. It's that there's skills that haven't been strengthened or developed in you. They're there. Being able to internally regulate, Mm -hmm. babies do it from like, you know, as early as six weeks old or earlier. They're internally regulating the amount of food that they want to eat every day, um, variety of foods. It's in there. It just hasn't been developed. Yeah. And so we have to just go back and develop that and then turn down the volume on your brain so that it can allow you to get back in touch with your body and start to internally regulate. Now that really makes sense. So this is just kind of like, this is step one, but I'll tell you, it can do a whole lot, right? Uh-huh. Um, getting really clear on what we're giving up and what we're moving toward and then experientially just regularly checking in with your body and, and what would feel pleasurable and Mm -hmm. delicious and good and going for it and just observing what happens because it takes the fear out, right? It's like, I don't know what I'm scared of. Well, you know, if you eat a cookie and you're fine, it starts to build the confidence. Like, okay, 
okay, I can eat a bit of sugar. Right. <laughs> if I eat X amount, I feel fine. If I eat Y, I feel a little bad. Okay. Information. No, I love that. I mean, thinking of food as information. is <laughs> Right. Right. I really loved that session. I loved starting to pull together some of the through lines of her story and finding a really beautiful starting place for her on her next, you know, the next part of the journey. I um, kind of laughing listening back to it because the airplane analogy is kind of amazing and sort of terrible all at the same time and listening to myself fumble through that. But, you know, I think that it's a terrible analogy. I mean, first and foremost, because I don't fly a plane. So I, I, it just wasn't holding up and I couldn't give great examples, but it's, it's a bit of a terrible analogy because unlike flying a plane, intuitive eating skills are born in us. We do have them, right? It's not something, um, that our body doesn't know. It's just something that for most of us that have, that are struggling with food or body, we've become incredibly disconnected from like the, the volume has been turned so, so far down on our body, on the information and signals that are coming from our body that we forget we ever had those signals. Right. Um, and flying a plane is a totally new skill that, you know, we aren't born with, we have to figure that out. So it's a little bit, it's a bit of a terrible analogy in that way, but in, in a great way, it's a great analogy because the volume has been turned down on that information for so long that she can't remember she ever did have it. So to her, it feels like a brand new skill and it feels terrifying. And what I was trying to express to her is that you are not supposed to be able to do something big and hard and complicated perfectly right off the bat. But that if we just take it step by step, if we take baby steps, if we are guided, if we have mentorship, if we learn bit by bit, step by step, we can do very big, very scary things that feel almost impossible, like flying an airplane. <laughs> so, you know, there are some good things about that analogy, but the major thing, um, or the big thing that I want people listening to know is that 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 skill, the skills are inside of you. They are in there. They just need to be uncovered. They need to be rediscovered. And it can be a messy process that's full of mistakes, but it's all just well worth it. And the results are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> 